This great decision uh, was unanimous. All five members of the Monetary Policy Committee voted in favour of keeping interest rates flat. But the governor also incredibly cautious when it comes to some fairly significant inflationary pressures in our economy. Let's talk to Isaac Machejo, the economist at Nedbank. Uh, 8.25%, the repo rate remains unchanged. But I'm the tone of global um, central banks, the United States, the United Kingdom, is one of we can't wait to start cutting. Lesitja Khanyaho is we might still raise interest rates if the need arises. The tone is very different in terms of what they're anticipating in the new year. Absolutely, Bruce. I mean, we have to look at the domestic situation, and the governor did indeed raise all those red flags. Uh, you know, the impact of uh, electricity shortages, uh, the logistical constraints, and of course, uh, the fiscal risks. Uh, you know, the situation we're seeing with the uh, government finances that could result in a higher risk premium. And a higher risk premium would simply mean that uh, international investors and even domestic investors demand a higher risk uh, compensation, let me say, for that, uh, that uh, to hold South African assets. And that would... Uh, put some pressure on the rent and, of course, translate into inflation pressures. Yeah, exactly. And that is the, the concern, of course, that the Reserve Bank has. Is it being overly cautious, in your opinion? I would not say so. I mean, just uh, casting an eye over our situation right now, macroeconomic situation, vis-a-vis our peers, uh, you're looking at Brazil, you're looking at uh, Chile, you're looking at India, we are in a bit of a tougher situation, primarily due to domestic constraints. Uh, domestic constraints. Those domestic constraints are primarily constraints imposed upon us by failing state-owned enterprises, state-owned enterprises that can't do their jobs. No doubt about that. And, uh, you know, it's been quite topical lately as, uh, you know, the backlog at the national ports uh, worsens. Uh, You know, the cost on to consumers could come through higher retail uh, prices as uh, retailers have to import uh, their goods via higher freight uh, rates, uh, you know, for instance, uh, depending on air traffic, uh, which would uh, result in lower volumes and higher higher costs in sea, instead of sea traffic, uh, which takes much larger volumes at a lower cost. I, I noticed today that the president was at Richards Bay, the coal terminal, the fraught coal terminal where the lines have been problematic. The terminal itself has struggled with volumes and we've seen the trucks then lining up and going to Maputo, which has got capacity and, and the ability to get the volumes out of our mines and into international markets. Uh, and I noticed today without some irony that the president saying, well, the private sector must come and help. The same private sector that the minister in the presidency was said was trying to bring down, was trying to destroy the economy earlier this week. Um, You know, contradictions and ironies are not far from our public discourse at the moment. This is a policy uncertainty that we always flag, Bruce. Uh, You know, what's the government's stance? Because remember, uh, I'd say we are standing on a burning platform here and we really need to accelerate uh, these reforms because it's been a long time coming. We've delayed uh, the implementation and stabilization of uh, the SOEs. We've uh, delayed sorting out uh, the troubles at the ports and, uh, 
you know, uh, ESCOM and, and all that. Now is the time to really focus on what we have to do and not uh, send these confusing messages. Thank you to Isaac Machejo, who is the economist at Nedbank. Listening to that, Maya Fisher-French, personal financial journalist at Maya on Money. Maya, welcome to The Money Show this evening. And if we don't eat and we keep the lights switched off, we don't drive anywhere and we don't consume anything that needs to be imported we are not going to have an inflation problem. We can live in a lovely inflation-free bubble. And problem is that absolutely every one of our key needs, mostly because of those that underpin that we should have from state-owned enterprises that should provide a backbone for the economy on which the rest of us can exist and thrive, just doesn't exist. And so we are affected by all of these state failures when it comes to the high cost of everything. You know, Bruce, I, I was laughing when I saw, um, I was laughing listening to you, but I saw, of course, a press release coming out saying, well, coreflation um, <laughs> is under control. That's coreflation. Things like our electricity, um, our fuel, all those things we, we, we require to actually exist. Well, they, if, we, if we take all those out, we're okay. Um, and, and so I agree with you. I think there is this, I, I'm not really interested in this. <laughs> Coreflation being under control. I think people are feeling, you know, incredibly squeezed, um, and and you know, and we can see it. We see it in people feeling upset. They're angry. Uh, they're frustrated. Um, and and definitely, this inflation is is starting to bite. And of course, these prolonged interest rates. While we may all be celebrating, it hasn't gone any higher. It is hurting. Uh, absolutely. But here's, here's the great problem that we have. Real household inflation, and the, the guys who compile the CPI are going to get cross with me about this, but the thing that really matters in our households, the fact that food costs have been going up in double digits and energy costs and fuel costs and all of the stuff that matters is going up in double digits. Our household inflation rate, the inflation rate that we pay, nowhere nearly reflects the um, the, the below 6% inflation rate which is published mm. and it is corroding household incomes and mm. if you're lucky enough to have a job you've probably had a decent enough increase but you're really frightened I think of price mm-hmm. increases into the future and you're, you're right to be because there's no guarantee that they slow down dramatically mm. anytime soon. Absolutely, and, and and Bruce, you know, these higher you know these higher interest rates that we've been experiencing. I was actually speaking to a woman. A little bit earlier today, who she was saying to me, it's a colleague of mine, she said a friend of hers called her today and said, I can't keep my house. I actually cannot keep my home. And, you know, yes, interest rates aren't going up, but people have been holding on. I feel like people have been holding on with their fingernails onto a ledge and they're starting to fall. And I think we're still to see the fallout of of the higher interest rates combined with the continuous inflation, I think we've still got a lot of pain coming. And obviously, hopefully, we can see rates coming down next year. But I, I, I think even by then, people are starting to run out of, well, out of runway. Um, they, they really are, yeah, it's getting very, very, very tough out there. And the tragedy, I mean, it's a real tragedy for so many households. And it eviscerates poor households more than middle-class households. Middle-class households have got higher fixed costs in terms of having to pay for cars and for mortgages and things like that. That is all very true. But they've, when you are subsisting on just a living wage, I can't imagine how, how those households are actually making ends meet, if at all. 
Look, I actually think it's hurting both. I think I think the lower income households are being hurt by inflation more because obviously a, a bigger portion of their basket is made up of food and transport, which have been big inflation, have been driven by inflation. Um, but then the middle class have got debt. So they've got home finance and car finance. And those, you know, I was speaking to, 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 if you think about this, okay, just take a scenario. When interest rates were 7%, remember that, Bruce? Oh, the good old days. The good old Um, days. If you were earning, taking home, take home pay with 25,000 rand a month, you would easily have qualified for a million rand mortgage. You would have been paying 7,700 rand a month. Now you're paying 10,700 rand a month. That's three. That is more than 10% of your take-home pay. Where does that money come from? Where, where does it come from? Added to the fact that food's gone up, petrol's gone up, and all of that. So I don't think underestimate what the interest rates have done to the middle class. And remember, for many, many, many middle house, uh, households, they are supporting the um, unemployed. Don't forget that part. So you've got, you've got the, to me, the middle class is actually really squeezed because they also have the family members who are unemployed, who are there trying to support and who are trying to help. So I think, you know, there isn't really anybody, um, except maybe people who don't have debt. I think if you didn't have debt, you're probably surviving this. But right now, that squeeze of interest rates and inflation, I think, is making, well, not I think, I know is making a lot of households really, really, really struggle at the moment. And I, I want to point out the counterpoint to this there as well. A lot of people are really cross with the Reserve Bank, really cross with the governor, saying these are not, um, you know, these are not costs driven by demand. These are uh, cost pressures that are beyond consumption. This isn't going to reduce inflation. But I just look at what's happening in Turkey, for example, and I know it's not a direct comparison, but it's a comparison nevertheless, where the Turkish government ba- effectively banned the central bank from raising interest rates and every time it tried to do so it would replace the central bank governor. See a story today that Turkey's central bank has raised its main interest rate to 40%. 40%. Previously it it raised interest rates 35% but they've got inflation running at over 61% and they expect inflation to reach 75%. And that is because they were negligent. That's because they didn't raise interest rates. That's because they didn't behave like the rest of the world. And they behaved like maverick lunatics. Um, and so as much as we may detest the high inf- interest rates in our country, it is something that has prevented us from going down a Turkish slippery slope. You yeah, boost completely. I, I'm not opposed to the high interest rates. I think they're hurting us. Yeah. But I agree. I think, you know, we have to understand that inflation and, you know, interest rates can come down. Yes, interest rates can come down. Inflation never comes down. So if your price of your bread increased by 10 rand, it's still going, it's not going to suddenly drop by 10 rand. We never see that massive deflation. So inflation compounds over time. So it is the worst enemy. It is far more dangerous than interest rates, which can get, you know, can be cut quite easily when inflation moderates. So I agree with you on that, but I think it's the home goals, and you were talking to Ivan just now about that, it's the home goals that have resulted in this that makes me angry. <laughs> you know, we don't have to be sitting at the exchange rate that we're sitting at. Uh, we don't have to be having these incredibly high costs um, due to complete failure of state-owned enterprises. So I think not the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank is, is working with the only tools it has at its disposal. We should be angry at government for creating the environment that we're in.
No, 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 no. You misunderstand, Maya. It's the private sector that's it's trying... It's the private sector we should be blaming, you're exactly. right. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Oh, hilarious. Maya Fisher-French, thank you. Personal finance journalist at Maya on Money. The Money Show. The Markets. Uh, to Rudy Fanamadwe we go, and Rudy, of course, is a portfolio manager at uh, uh, at uh, Advice Works. Uh, and Rudy, the rand up to its old tricks, it's just not finding any support anywhere, is it? Evening, Bruce. No, it's not, unfortunately. Um, I think it was a relatively quiet day of trade, the Americas on on Thanksgiving sort of holidays today. Uh, but yes, it just doesn't seem to be any persistent positive news and uh, unfortunately the, the issues we're having at our ports and railways and the like have a massive impact on on our ability to transact with the rest of the world both from an importation and an exportation perspective uh, and and that makes our, our current account vulnerable over time um, so unfortunately uh, we need you know more direction for in the in the in the correct direction uh, for for the rank to really sustainable start start improving yeah, absolutely. Um, although a couple of interesting trading updates today, probably the healthiest and the best one and the most handsome looking trading update today was the one out of City Lodge. And it was interesting in yesterday's CPI numbers, they pointed out that hotel uh, bed night inflation is running at 9%. And that's the price increase that City Lodge has put onto its bills over the last 12 months, an extra 9%. And that 9% is sticky and occupancies are rising. And business travel is picking up and holiday traffic is picking up they're having a much better time of it now looking very very promising indeed bruce uh, yeah the, the occupancies are, are now up on 2019 levels so, so above what they were pre-covid uh, from last year they're up to 62 odd percent now from 54 percent uh, and that's a massive move you know for for hotels their earnings and their, their profitability is enormously geared to the Occupancy, just a, a single percentage point of of increase in in occupancy, has an enormously larger impact on their on their bottom line. So it really is very positive. Um, and they've, as you said, uh, rates are up by nine percent on a previous increase of twelve. So that's quite nice, persistent progression they've made there. They seem to be generating quite uh, quite nice increases in revenues on their. The food and beverage sector, which is up about forty-four percent, but they've um, also give, they've well, also given it a, a long overdue overhaul. I mean, anybody who's been to a city lodge in uh, recent times is perfectly aware of the fact that food and beverage has never really been a focus. Um, and it's good that they finally are realizing the importance of treating you know customers' feeling as if they're getting a little bit of value. It certainly seems that way, Bruce, and it seems like that's, that's finding a very positive sort of landing place with with with, with the use of City Lodge as well. Uh, and then they're also in a, in a good position from a, from a net cash position where they don't have any debt at the moment, which is very useful, actually have positive cash balances. And they seem to have largely addressed some of the, the exposure to, to load shedding by uh, creating alternative solutions in the form of solar and so forth. Uh, so, so they seem very well placed. You know, if, if uh, we, we don't need to get a lot more growth for, for City Lodge really to start firing on on all cylinders here, and um, they mm. uh, seem to be well positioned to 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 generate better earnings growth. Something is not firing on all cylinders. A disappointing trading update from Spa today. That sent the share price a little lower. It's been very distracted, of course, with governance issues and all sorts of problems and changes of leadership and management. Um, and yeah, it, it sort of comes through in the trading update. Yeah, it's a terrible trading update. Bruce, uh, look, looks like earnings are going to be under massive pressure. 
Uh, they're talking about earnings diluted headline earnings being down by 53 or 43 to 53%, which is very, very material. A big chunk of that pain is, is one offs related to issues rolling out their new SAP system in KwaZulu Natal, which uh, relayed into them uh, losing a, a chunk of sales and not being able to operate at, at, at normalized levels. So not all of this is is persistent, uh, but still, it, it doesn't doesn't look particularly great. Um, they've de- discontinuing Poland, essentially looking to sell that business, so they're having to impair that as well. Uh, and and all of this is happening in an environment where the consumer is already very constrained. Some of their competitors are are extremely aggressive and 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 are not suffering from the same weaknesses as as far as so they are losing some market share there as well. Uh, so yeah, they're certainly in in a tough space at the moment. Um, but it does seem like they're, they're making making some progress. So hopefully we could could see a, a less strained environment mm. over over the next reporting period. But for the moment, uh, I think they're in a, in a tough space. I don't, I don't think Mr. Price's trading update was fabulous, but it was certainly less awful than anybody had anticipated. It seems like that's exactly what happened, Bruce, because it really really wasn't very inspiring. Um, the revenues are, are under pressure at the moment. Uh, and uh, headline earnings were down in the region of nine-ish percent, so they are are feeling the the, the ravages of the current environment. A, a lot of their pain has come as a result of load shedding. Uh, they're talking about 190 odd million rands of lost revenue uh, as a result of that. Uh, the market seems to be taking some cheer from the fact that the, the second quarter was a lot better than the first quarter. They they seem to have. Again, invested quite a lot in, in trying to address the load shedding issues. Um, 100% of their facilities now have, have backup power of some sort from, from closer on sort of 60% in the, at the end of the first quarter. So it means their ability to trade at least isn't as constrained. Uh, they seem to have gotten rid a lot of, of a lot of their excess stock that they had. Some of that was had to be discounted quite significantly, um, which means that the, the margins were under quite material pressure. Uh, but it seems like that's been cleared now. So this, you know, they, they just uh, also in a, in a better place uh, from a, if, if one is prepared to look forward and, and give them opportunity. Uh, hopefully, most of the bad news is now behind them, uh, and they can start progressing into, into actually generating some some more rational earnings growth going forward. Rudy van der our market commentator this evening, is a portfolio manager at AdviceWorks. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. The crisis in the ports has been coming for a very, very long time. Things happen very, very slowly, and then they happen suddenly. Um, rail has been a disaster, and, 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 a, and a, a sort of it's been a freight train heading to a brick wall for a long time. And freight rail in South Africa is, you know, in a huge amount of trouble, and the ports have all but broken down. And there's some very, very strong opinions on this. Of course, anybody who's importing or exporting, a friend of mine is trying to get a product into the country, and he's been told, yeah, your Christmas product will be here by February. I mean, it's completely unacceptable. Um, that you can plan and you can place your orders and you can pay for your orders to be, and they can just bob up and down on the ocean uh, while waiting for for the you know for the ports to get around to welcoming the ship in so they can be offloaded. And there's nothing you can do about it. Professor Jan Havenga is an industrial engineering professor at Stellenbosch and is with us on the Money Show this evening. Jan, welcome to the Money Show. It's good to have you have you with us. This 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 catastrophe in logistics um, is creating so many problems, uh, and I wonder, 
whether we should have seen it coming sooner and how we might have dealt with it differently? Uh, there's no doubt that we saw this coming. Uh, it, I mean, it, it's got a legacy, a very long legacy. But the more, most recent legacy after state capture, state capture causes a lot of problems. Uh, we have the cross-subsidization problems. That often that money that's earned by the Port Authority and by terminals cross-subsidize other parts of uh, Transnet operations. There wasn't enough uh, distinction between the two. They, after state capture, what happened is we got a new management in, and this new management made a huge amount of mistakes, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I can summarize it into four things, uh, if you talk about ports uh, and also rail. Uh, on the port side, yes, it's true. There was equipment failures. There wasn't enough investment in equipment. There wasn't enough new equipment. Uh, there wasn't enough maintenance done. All of that is true, and I know that the current management is, uh, is very, very urgently trying to address that. But the second problem uh, was the fact that the railway itself uh, was failing. And if the railway fails, what happens then the truck, the, 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 the roadside, the roadside of the, the port becomes becomes congested, and, and then then you get failures and, and changes and stuff like over there. The third problem, which is the worst, and I can assure you, it's even worse than the equipment problems. The people. Uh, the previous management created the toxic culture. A lot of people left the business. A lot of people just went away. A lot of people offered severance packages and they went. And uh, now that the new management, which is much better, is allowing us back in to see what's going on there, we just re- realize how destructive the place is in terms of people who are still competent. There are still many competent people, but they just basically were not allowed to do their job properly. Which then obviously leads to a lot of problems. Absolutely. And, and again, you've got a, a state-owned entity here with enormous debt. I think 120 billion rand in debt or something that they want Treasury to take. 135. So I beg your pardon. I, I lost track. I missed last week's <laughs> rise. Um, it, it's, just, it's, it's an impossibility for you to dig yourself out of the hole that has been created for you as a new management team. It's the ultimate in a hospital pass. Um, and you kind of are caretaking a disaster um, because you can't, you know, without radical intervention, without radical restructuring, without radical capital, um, actually do anything different. So what is the solution then? Um, because we're not going to fix it by next week. My mate's not going to get his uh, Christmas product uh, until February. So, you know, this season is written off in many respects. Uh, how might How might we solve the problem? Yeah, there, there is a shorter, a long-term solution. Uh, and we have to solve this, by the way. And, and I'll say why. But I just desperately need to make the point that the hospital pass, luckily, was to was to the best centers that you can think of. <laughs> the best wing, the best wing people that have pushed out before. No, they're, they're two fantastic people. Uh, I, I, that is giving me a little glimmer of hope. Uh, Michelle Phillips, the new uh, the new head of uh, acting head of of, of Transnet. Uh, she's a hardworking lady. I know her well. She's clever. She's committed. Uh, she's, she's really, in terms of stewardship, she takes this on very seriously. And then the new head of the railways is a guy called Russell Bike, who I also know well. So we're not doing them a favor, giving them a job. I can assure you of no. that because they did get the hospital pass. That does not mean like everything in life that they're not going to try and do damn best. Uh, uh, that I know. And, and they're putting everything in that they can. But your other observation is correct. That the destruction caused by the previous management is so bad that just working very hard is probably not going to be enough. Uh, I agree with you there. So, but the bigger things they're also working on, because the bigger things that you're looking at uh, in terms of the short term, 
is the things that the previous management did not want to do, and that is to bring private sector in as fast and as quickly as they possible. Now, we can't start a new investment from the private sector within a day. But what you can do is, is the National Logistics Crisis Committee is setting up these observation rooms, it's setting up these crisis centers, all of that. And, and uh, Ms. Darby and uh, Keller, they were very much opposed to private sector looking at their shoulder. These two people are different. And the private sector has come to the party that promised the president that they will help if they're allowed in. So very short term, just get the private sector skills back and uh, work with them uh, and let them help the people inside that is also skilled. And as quickly as possible, just get the people to operate uh, as they operated before and to care for the place. And I think if we can get that tick, and we are very quickly seeing that happening. We are, I know there's quite a bunch of uh, work that's been done. Obviously, it's not so easy to set up just to parachute in private sector people into, into a business. There's a lot of things that you, need to, uh, that you need to tick. But they are accepting assistance, which is fantastic. The second thing that you need to do is obviously get the equipment corrected. And there I'm quite curious about what's happening there. Uh, I must speak to them uh, soon. And I want to find out because, for instance, Transnet's strangely enough engineering business, heavy, heavy duty engineering business, Transnet engineering is quite a successful business. So I hope they are, they are considered and they're helping with getting this mechanical failures fixed. And that's the other thing I would have done. This is as quickly as possible, get some of the big engineering firms in and say, let's not worry too much about the cost because the cost of the economy is in the region of hundreds of millions per day. Let us, let us come and let us just fix this equipment as fast as possible. I think that's the short term. Get people working again and get the equipment sorted again. And then start working on the short term and medium term in adhering to the roadmap that we've put forward in Operation Bernabella that, uh, that the President has promised us and that is in place now and nearly. It, I hope it will go to Cabinet soon. Adhering to that, get the business into such a state that development bank funding can come aboard. And then we can do what we call restructuring process yeah. balance. Because that needs to be done. The government's not going to give them capital. That's not going to happen. So we need to restructure the balance sheet. No, absolutely right. But I'm delighted, Jan. Thank you very much for your contribution this evening. A really uplifting contribution, too, in terms of finding solutions to seemingly intractable problems. And the willingness, the willingness... Of private, the private sector going, please, Tumamina. Remember Tumamina. Oh, it was a lovely three weeks of Tumamina. Let's bring Tumamina back. This is The Money Show. And a very strange story that I alluded to earlier is this a claim by hackers that they have managed to breach the security of two of South Africa's big credit bureaus. Uh, TransUnion says it's aware of a financial demand from a threat actor, that's what you call these heisters, asserting they have accessed TransUnion South Africa's data. Uh, they continue to monitor closely. They said we've had found no evidence that our systems have been inappropriately accessed and that data has been ex. Exfiltrated. What a word is that? Exfiltrated. I mean, stolen. Use that word. Goodness gracious me. Exfiltrated. That's a new word for me. Uh, and then uh, the other guys, of course, in the, the mix here as well, experience also suggesting that they've fairly taken a 
taken aback by this claim. Uh, Gilchrist Mushwana is the Director of Cybersecurity at BDO Advisory Services. It's a weird one, this one, isn't it, Gilchrist? I mean, you would think that if you had been hacked, you'd be aware of it. Or is there sort of a, a back door that these hackers use sometimes that, you know, when sometimes when you get home late at night, you don't lock all the windows and lock all the doors. Did somebody maybe go in through uh, the small bathroom window and nobody's picked it up yet? Hi, Bruce, and uh, good evening to your listeners. Uh, look, um, not every attack is, is about uh, a data breach or involves a data breach. And what that means is that, look, a data breach is basically an event when an intruder copies and leaks user information, such as your name, surnames, uh, email addresses, and password. So some of, you know, um, you know the attacks can be about, you know, just disrupting a technology or system service or causing a panic uh, to an organization or targeting that organization in order to harm its own reputation. So, look, in terms of um, uh, the tendencies of hackers claiming to have information, it's nothing new. Um, Hackers often do that uh, to claim that they have stolen information. It is a tactic that they use. Uh, precisely to cause a sense of agency or panic uh, within an organization or an individual that they are targeting. So, I mean, when they do that, it's to, it's to uh, create an opportunity to, um, to facilitate some form of extortion um, targeting that specific organization. So what is important is always, um, one, important to actually verify whether it's true or false. Uh, if you take the two organizations that you spoke about, these are very high-profile organizations. They deal with very serious business in terms of collecting and maintaining credit information uh, of millions of consumers and businesses. They also play a very strategic role within the financial services in terms of providing information that is related to credit. So what what my point around these organizations is that, look, um, based on the size and also their profile, they should have some sort of a verification to be able to verify whether a data breach has taken place. And that happens through internal processes where investigations are done uh, together uh, with people that are trying to do that within the organization, supported by their partners. Uh, such as specialists, such as ourselves at video. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, Gilchrist? I mean, the vulnerability, and I'm getting a lot of stuff that's going straight to my junk mail, and I clear up my junk mail on a daily basis, just making sure that I, um, you know, keeping on top of it. But the number of scams that are coming through at the moment that are clearly being picked up by the filters within the building um, and, and sending the stuff directly to junk, um, there, there does seem to be a surge at the moment. Um, you know, the last couple of months have been quite quiet, and there's, I don't know if it's an end-of-year thing or if there's, I don't, I don't know what's really going on. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, one of the uh, the most successful ways for hackers to actually extract critical information in terms of your credentials is through phishing. It's always been successful. So for a successful attack to take place, this is reported by Verizon and also the World Economy Forum, eight or nine out of ten times, it will involve the human factor, meaning that a human being will enable that. So yes, you're correct in terms of 
targeting, you know, some of the scams will be, you know, will also coincide with, you know, what is taking place around a specific period. If you look at this period of Black Friday, as you know, there will be, you know, certain type of scams that are created, you know, just to piggyback on this particular season, which is that of Black Friday. But what I also want to share with you with regards to data breaches is that, look, in, the, in, in this year, uh, between quarter one and quarter two, we've seen a surge of around 156% uh, in terms of increases of data breaches. So that translates to over 800 million accounts that were actually leaked, that were copied and leaked, uh, you know, uh, that were copied and leaked. So, and that shows you the extent in terms of the problem statement that we're dealing with in terms of information that continues to be hacked, you know, for malicious purposes, huh? Thank you, Gilchrist, very much. Gilchrist Mushwana, the Director of Cybersecurity at BDO Advisory Services. Yeah, clear as mud, really, in terms of whether there's been a hack and whether or not there's been a data breach, but certainly these guys are claiming it. It's a Brazil-based um, organization called, and it, it's actually impossible to say because it's made up of lowercase and highercase letters and nonsense uh, sequence of letters and numbers, but it sort of looks like Naughty Sec 2 Group. Um, and apparently they've hacked TransUnion before and have managed to bypass the organization's uh, firewalls. Um, and they got a message uh, via, uh, we're told that um, journalist Sabelo Skiti's name and identity number uh, were sent to by a personal WhatsApp account. And the Naughty Sec group is currently inside you and your client's infrastructure will expose all data and system files within the next 24 hours should our ransom demands not be met in the next 24 hours. And it's terrifying, absolutely petrifying uh, when these sort of attacks happen because it is literally like somebody climbing through a small window and waking you up in the middle of the night and going, hey, where's the cash? It's that same sort of idea. Less physical danger. But for companies, terrifying. This week, I was lucky enough to be invited to speak at the annual leadership gathering of the South African Institute of Chartered Accountants. And there, they had a whole bunch of entrepreneurs and people and, and booths set up and people pushing their ideas and, and, and really sharing some fabulous ideas. And Elan Lee is the founder of Nagging Panda. He's chief executive of a company called TechZoo Corporation. And the founder of this new, I don't want to call it a debt collecting service because then people have a particular image, but essentially, Alan, it is a debt collecting service, right? Evening, Bruce. How's it? Yes, uh, we, we get that quite a lot. We, we like to call it automated accounts receivable. Debt collection. Okay. <laughs> you use accounting terms, I use English. Fair um, enough. What's the, what's the problem that you're solving? So we're tackling three uh, major business problems. One, um, we say businesses are often getting paid late, sometimes very late, sometimes just not at all. Uh, the second thing that we're tackling is that businesses just don't have time to follow up on their quotes. They're spending so much time getting the business through the door, but after the quote goes out, nothing happens. Um, and then the third is that businesses are just struggling to find a trustworthy debt collector. So if somebody's not paying an invoice, uh, there's just no response and you need uh, another level of help, it's quite difficult to find somebody trustworthy who will take on your debt. Uh, what, what's the problem in the debt collection industry then? I mean, what is the issue with trust there? 
Because usually, so, they, usually these are law firms that have got themselves a hustle of collecting debts, and we know lawyers are trustworthy, don't we? Well, so sometimes, you know, the, the, we've seen it a couple of times where you've got to then go and collect from the collector because they've collected your money, but you've got to go and collect it from them. But uh, the, the trust factor, and often on the debt collector side, actually, is that the debt's just too small. So if you've got, uh, you know, somebody sitting with a, a, a debt where somebody hasn't paid their plumbing invoice, uh, to take that to a debt collector and ask him to take it on, there's nothing forward coming for that debt collector to open that uh, customer file. So aggregating through Nagging Panda actually creates a good environment for the debt collector because it's a steady flow of work. All right. So tell me then how this works. I mean, you use lots of uh, quite highfalutin tech language in the beginning, but just give me a sense of, of, of how it works. I'm a small business owner and 10 people owe me uh, 5,000 rand each. And I'm I really, you know, it's, it's a nice amount of money, but it's neither going to break me or, or make me rich, but it's money that is mine. I need to get it in. I come to you and I say, Elan, please just set your big beady-eyed panda um, on on these 10 people who owe me five grand each. How would we go about it? Sure. So the first thing that we do is we connect with your accounting software. So that's one of the, the entering criteria. You must have some form of accounting software to make this fully automated. Otherwise, we've got functionality like CSV uploads, which are a bit more manual. But the point is more that on Nagging Panda, you easily, with no uh, tech degree required, create what we call a workflow. Uh, you can set them up per customer or one for every customer. Uh, the concept is that you tell us when to nag, what to say, and how frequently to do it. So it comes down to as simple as saying, send an email two days before the due date, five days after, and keep going until I get paid. Uh, send it at 7 and 10 and 3 and 4 and whatever time you want to, so you nag as much as you like. The, the concept is that we automate the process for you, so we take that laborious, manual, awkward horrible task of having to nag somebody for your money uh, and we we automate it for you then if you don't get paid you've got the automatable option to send the, those invoices to the debt collector our general hope and, and experience is that by being quite disciplined in your reminders to your customer that they will actually pay you uh, and in a much shorter time frame than they would have usually if it doesn't work though that's why the debt collector is there Okay, so you send these, these requests, these demands, these insistences, um, and the moment the debt is paid, because you've now got access to my accounting software, you see that the payment is being made. There's a reference that goes ping in an inbox somewhere, and then the nagging stops, I hope, because otherwise that yes. causes all kinds yeah, yeah, of other problems. So as soon as it's marked paid on the accounting software, nagging panda automatically stops, and the same on a quote. As soon as it's marked closed or accepted, we also stop. So. Uh, your accounting uh, software or your CSV upload just becomes the instruction to say uh, stop or carry on. The name? Please explain Nagging Panda. I love the name so much. But um, as far as I can tell, pandas are quite lethargic, don't do very much, and eat shoots and leaves. They don't do, <laughs> do too much beyond that. Uh, I can actually, yeah, we actually heard that joke a few times at our stand <laughs> the other day. <laughs> um, so um, in the general sense, uh, when we look at Nagging Panda on the, the overview and how it works, we, we also encourage, sorry, if, I, if I'm going off topic, I'm just looking at my notes, and I really wanted to make sure that I mentioned our pay button because I should have said it earlier, <laughs> was just we also encourage the use of our pay button okay. uh, to make sure that you get paid uh, faster and quicker as well. Got you.
Okay, but talk to me about the name, the the the, the branding of the, nagging panda. The because nagging panda, there's, the name, so there's a risk. There's a risk that I find it very cute, but a lot of people say, "Well, I'd rather go to Fundestell, Cesar, and Glovo and Jones. They sound sure. scary as a sure. law firm who's going to get the, the name, money out." Than the name, panda. the name there, because it it was specifically made to make people remember it. And I'm going to tell you a story. All the ladies listening to this are going to they're going to look at me funny. But we actually started with nagging Susie. And it was because uh, somebody had said to me, yes, the nagging Susie behind the desk will call, don't worry. And we were going to go with that. We got too many dirty looks. No, good. And then straight away, uh, the name Panda, because we said everybody loves a panda. They're cute. They're cuddly. People like them. So if a panda's nagging you, you won't get too upset and you'll hopefully comply. Um, And and what are the success rates like? I mean, what what sort of hit rates are you getting? Pretty good, actually. So we're finding where people are adopting the technology intelligently. Uh, we've actually had uh, use cases where, in fact, a cloud accountant uh, saw a turnaround time of generally 60 to 90 days uh, improved to within a week worth of payment because their issue was actually quite simple. They found it too awkward and too personal to get hold of their own customer because yeah. it's quite a personal relationship sure. to actually go and make those phone calls to say, hey, you've got to pay me. So by implementing Nagging Panda on a diligent, automated basis, they turned their performance around and actually managed to grow their business. Now, obviously, uh, that's a great success story. But in general, we find that by being timeless with your reminders, by being diligent, by being disciplined, and and remember, this takes no more effort than one setup to just get yourself going. uh, And it becomes easy and customers uh, respond. I joined a company many, many years ago, and they just acquired a business. And the business's biggest problem was a debtor's book. And I just, you sat in the office listening day in and day out to two of the most astonishingly patient and persistent women whose job it was to phone everybody individually. And how time-consuming and unproductive an exercise that was. It's certainly, it's, it's absolutely huge. And there are lots of statistics that show so many businesses fail because they simply don't get paid on time. Um, and you know, you're expected to pay your bills. And so the, there's this whole knock-on effect in an economy. So the problem that you would like Pavlo to solve for you this evening is how do you take a solution that you've created and, and penetrate a market? Because this is a business now based in Dubai, is it? Yeah, so we we based the business um, out of Dubai so that we could uh, work with you know the whole world. That's how that's our goal and vision. Um, the market, you know, technology adoption in South Africa is so vast. There's a there's a whole range of um, tech savvy business to no tech at all, uh, and some businesses somewhere in the middle. Guys that are super tech savvy using uh, Zero, Monday.com, Slack, OneDrive, Dropbox, all those things all the way down to businesses running off of uh, notes written on their phones or on a piece of paper trying to keep track of customers, uh, and how to segment it and get in so that in this case, we've got a new technology, a new brand. What's that, what's that idea? We're, we're always working on honing the segmentation and, and the message to the customer, but it's always great to hear from a guy that wrote, uh, literally wrote the books on uh, you know, scaling and selling at how to get into the market and penetrate and really uh, get people to adopt. Uh, thank you very much for coming through for us this evening, Elan. Uh, Elan is the founder at Nagging Panda. The Money Show. Small business. With Pablo Fatidis. So for some reason, the tech is letting us down, but, but we creative souls here on The Money Show. This could be a disaster. 
um, or it could work really well. Pablo Fatidis is the founder, chief bottle washer and of Auric Business Accelerator, has been listening to Elan Lee, the founder at Nagging Panda. And Pav, it's really exciting when people come up with fabulous and entrepreneurial ideas. And what Elan is looking to do is break into new markets, not only the South African market, but markets around the globe. I'm wondering first what you make of the idea. Collecting money and getting money collected is essential. It's very easy to invoice, but if the money doesn't come in, um, you won't be invoicing for very long at all. And Bruce, it remains a real problem across business, and it's becoming an increasing problem for the simple fact that as the economies get tighter, as interest rates rise, as inflation rises, as skills crises continue, as dithering governments completely do and redo, then undo, then redo incentives around business and operating business, creating uncertainty in the investment environment. People get nervous, and when people get nervous, they hold on to the cash. Despite the fact that you might have provided a service or a product, collecting money is going to become a key feature if you want to stay afloat next year. Absolutely. So what you need is a friendly debt collector, or at least a debt collector that sounds like they've got a sense of humor about the way in which they do things, but they're persistent and a pain in the neck. Um, and eventually, I suppose, you can force the people who owe you money to capitulate and hand it over. Yeah, pretty much so. Um, it's harder in some businesses than others. So in a product-based business where you supply something that can be seen, felt, touched, evaluated, weighed, measured, fits the description You've got proof of delivery. You've got proof of everything. A lot easier to support your claims in a service industry. It gets really complicated. And the main reason for it is that services don't have clear, defined edges. And typically customers stretch, it's called scope creep, stretch services. And in stretching a service, it becomes very fuzzy and hazy as to whether the service was delivered or not delivered. But it depends what kind of service it is. If it's, for example, a marketing service, how do you measure the delivery? If it's fixing the geezer in your home by the plumber, well, that's very easy. It either works or it doesn't work afterwards. And it also is difficult, I suppose, if you are collecting the debt. You've got a personal relationship with the person um, with whom you're dealing. It could be another small business or it could be a person in a corporation and you don't want to upset the corporation. So if you can outsource it, you say, well, it's not really me. It's the panda and the panda is persistent. The panda is nagging. There's one way to make the panda stop and it can only stop once you hand over the cash. Sorry, it's them, not me. That's quite useful to put it at arm's length. I think it is, Bruce, but I think it, re it really depends. Like everything, it depends. And in listening to what Ilan has built, the nagging process is extremely useful because it starts to build up a legitimate case behind the collection. Yep. It will support evidence of the fact that you have not been, you've not been told we're not paying because of. And if you are told we're not paying because of, you can address that. And once you've addressed it, you can engage nagging panda again to then persistently ask for the loan or the, the funding to be paid. But here's the thing. You've got to, you've got to think really carefully about who you are in business. So for example, where I think this finds a very neat home is typically the man in the van, as it's so called. The individual who has a plumbing business is running from job to job to job to job to job, might have a service that receives phone calls or works on an app to secure work, yeah. typically that person, if that person is not fixing, not using their hands, not delivering the service, then they're not invoicing. 
And whilst they're doing that and not invoicing or invoicing and not getting paid, it creates a massive crunch in those businesses. If, on the other hand, you are a tax advisor on unique elements of cross-border trading and you're dealing with three clients only, where in which the relationship is deeply trusted, it is they're large invoices, it's complex work, you're not going to be using a nagging panda engagement because the relationship is fundamentally different. But someone collecting from you or me as a plumber or electrician or garden service, whatever the case may be, well, if we are nagged to a point where we get aggravated, well, then you've lost nothing because you'll simply fix the next geezer, the next geezer, the next geezer. You don't really want to pick skeezers for people who don't pay you. In that instance, automating the process is fantastic. Absolutely. Now, how does Elan break into new markets? Because he's got ambitions. He knows mm-hmm. the Middle East. It's where the business is based. He knows South Africa. He's been here many years. And he can kind of figure that out. But there are many markets in the world where this sort of service is deeply required, not just ours. How do you reach your potential customers with a startup, with a bright idea, in quite a competitive landscape, because they are debt collectors and debt collectors, but there are also people who just do it smarter uh, and um, with persistence without being offensive, which is the debt collection process can be a bit offensive sometimes. Well, the first thing is you've got to pick your clients very carefully. You know, Elan's business is not suited to any and any business of any size or any distinction. If Elan turns around and says, I solve a very particular problem, we understand that the problem is getting a debt paid or getting a debt collected because you simply don't have time. It's not because the product wasn't delivered or the service wasn't, wasn't delivered. Nagging Panda won't help with that. If you're confident that you've delivered the service or the product and you simply don't have the time to manage that, then it becomes viable. Next thing is you want to be invoicing a lot. So if you do happen to aggravate Bruce Whitfield, who then says, so easy. I will pay you, but I will never work with you again. It's neither here nor there, quite frankly. And the third thing is, you've got to decide on the size of the business. Because if the business is very small and you have only, let's say, 20 clients, upsetting or losing one of those clients has a disastrous impact. Yeah. If you have many clients and there's small amounts that you're collecting on a consistent basis, it's neither here nor there. So that's the first thing. You've got to position effectively. Then, Bruce... You have to pay to play. And what that means, identify two, three clients that fit that profile where you can prove not only the use case of the product working effectively, but the proposition relevant to businesses of that type and shape. And go and do a deal. And here's where it gets hard. The deal needs to be, I will provide you with the service at no cost for the first six months. But the basis of the deal needs to be, let me understand your collection rates. Let me understand your invoice request for payment rates. Let me measure the status quo. Let's implement it. And let me track the improved performance that my app or my service itself can deliver. And because I'm doing it at no cost for you, number one, you're going to allow me to measure. And number two, if there are performance improvements, you're going to trumpet it to the world because you will be my reference case and my reference client. You've got to pay to pay. You do. Everyone is too busy. No one has any interest. And they already have some sort of solution, whether it's a crappy one or not, in play.
Pablo Fatidis at Auric Business Accelerator. Thank you very much, Pablo Fatidis, uh, for giving us some insights and wisdom, of course, and helping Elan Lee this evening, the founder at Nagging Panda. No doubt many other people who've got bright ideas that they want to get into market. And those principles, I think, are universal. The Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. APSA CIB, the market leader in renewable energy deals across Africa, is proud to bring you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. Warren Ingram's eyes have been bigger than normal this evening because he's sitting across the room from me in the studio. And Pavlo was connected to us via a digital platform, unnamed. And somehow, uh, we just he could hear us, we couldn't hear him. So I had a thought, and I saw Jonathan Fairburn. You know Jonathan Fairburn. He's very famous. He produces the um, Afternoon Drive show on 702 for John Perlman. He's also involved, of course, in uh, reporting on social media on The Breakfast Show with Bongani Bingwa on 702. I saw him the other day um, at the rugby – they were talking to Jean de Villiers, I think it was, at the at the Rugby World Cup. And Jean was just nowhere near a landline, nowhere near anything. And so – and was you know, couldn't you know, was available there and then. And I saw Jonathan holding his cell phone, and by putting his hands around the microphone as I'm doing now, and therefore will change the sound you're hearing, was able then to sort of channel the cell phone sound into the microphone. And suddenly I had an epiphany, a moment. So I phoned Pablo on a WhatsApp call, held the phone to the microphone, and it worked. It wasn't 100% for which I apologize. But hey, Pavla provided a solution to a guy who needed assistance. Kaboom! I thought that was quite good, Warren Ingram. I'm delighted to see you in the flesh so that we don't have to do it and do it and do it again this evening. I'll stay close to the microphone and try and sound good. Oh, well, stay close to the microphone. We can't have everything. <laughs> now, Warren Ingram, um, we, a lot of people are really disappointed with the, inv- the investment performances of their shares. And they look at portfolios and they just go, you know what? What is the point of investing? Investments have gone practically nowhere for the last five years. The all share index has been between 70,000 and 75,000 odd uh, and, and vacillating broadly in the very the broad trading range for for five years um and actually this is pointless and i have had enough now this money must be taken out and be put into government bonds at 12 percent. i will pay the interest i will pay the tax whatever it's required i am out of investment markets yeah, and that uh, so so you're doing a very good impersonation of a, of a, I would suspect a, a very significant portion of investors. I feel it, <laughs> uh, but, but investors in South Africa and actually all around the world, uh, and I, I don't like to hear the, the 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 discomfort from people, but but I think if that becomes the popular sentiment, uh, it's a it's a fantastic signal that we're at the end of a cycle. We're, we're at the end of, uh, they, they actually even have a name for it. It's called capitulation. Yes. Uh, and and I feel we're, we're pretty much there. Uh, and so if you're in that position and you're you're feeling the same and you're resonating with Bruce, uh, the, the one thing you really shouldn't do for once is don't listen to Bruce this time around. No, no, no. I was I was acting. I was adding I, I, drama. I get it. I get it. But, but you know, but, we, but we, don't we've got to, very don't, unhappy. Don't listen to acting Bruce don't listen to acting Bruce we've got unhappy people out there in the world and, uh, understandably and yeah. uh, and, and so the, the the reason for 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 the advice for once not to listen to acting Bruce is 
uh, we're we're pretty much at the end of it. I think we you know we we have the announcement today from the Reserve Bank that nothing's happened. It's not even worth talking about because nothing's happened, uh, and and we're pretty much getting the same news out of the American Federal Reserve. So what we know now is uh, interest rates are are at their peak. If they're not, they're extremely close and. What happens after something peaks is it falls. And falling interest rates are extremely good news for bond investors, for share investors, for property investors, pretty much for all investors, except those people that took all their money and put it on fixed deposit because their fixed deposit rates are going to start going down. Uh, and, and so what you don't want to do now is go and capture that 7% or 8% interest at a time where you might end up getting 20% from the stock market, maybe 10 or 12% from the bond market, uh, and the same on global yeah. investments. So, so my, my comment here is, uh, if you've been that, you know, that diversified investor where you've had bonds, you've had property, you've had shares, uh, and you've been disappointed with all of them, Understand that the cycle is most likely turning. Uh, and, and the one thing about diversification, which is what we're talking about now, is it works in your favor most of the time, not 100% of the time. Sure. Uh, and the biggest enemy of good diversification is not any one of the indiv individual investments you own. It's actually the person that looks at you in the mirror in the morning. It's you, the investor, because at some point you lose faith. You get really grumpy because something's going up somewhere that you don't own. And, and then you say, well, you know, if I look at the last five years, what I should have done was bought the Magnificent Seven. Could have, should have, and would have, the three widows of regret. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, the temptation is to chase those things uh, because, you know, you don't want to miss out on the last bit of growth that they're going to give you. And, and that's when capitulation happens. And that is when the patient diversified investor who hasn't been looking in the mirror, hasn't been dealing with the FOMO, starts to really benefit. And I think that that's, you know, it's a theme we kind of need to repeat for maybe every single show for a little while until markets turn to say, markets do turn. Uh, and this is not blind, dumb faith. This is a, a fact of markets. They work in these cycles. And, and one of the biggest mistakes that people are prone to make if they're not getting decent advice, and you should always get decent advice, is you go, right, over the last five years, I have been a mug. I have like kept the faith and I believe that oh, it, can't, it can't possibly be bad for five years in a row. Investment time frame, we were told we must invest for at least five years. And I've gone nowhere in five years. But look what's happened elsewhere. The JSE has given us, I think, an average of 8% a year in RAND, but you translate that into dollars and we've got like 1% a year. If I'd invested in dollars five years ago, I would have almost doubled my money by now in RAND terms. Wow. I better do that now. Just before the things turn. Then that's, then that's the risk, isn't it? And, and you know, one of the things to, to a South African investor is we, we, we so fixated on, on our very obvious problems that we think we're the only market that's going nowhere. Uh, over five years, you know, the, the all emerging markets, they, they, even have, they even have an index for, the, for, for all emerging markets. But, but all emerging markets have given you around about 1.5% a year for five years. So, so all emerging markets have not kept pace with inflation. It's not just the JSE, despite our problems. Uh, and I think that understanding that if, if great emerging markets with fantastic demographics, great educated populations, dynamic governments, all of those, all clumped together with some bad emerging markets, if they've all done 1.5%. When sentiment turns, when interest rates turn, what that means is uh, the, the cycle turns for emerging markets as well. And yeah. guess what? We're one of them. We start to benefit. Yeah, and again, we think, well, it's not going to happen because of the hundred things that I can tell you why people will say it's not going to happen. But there is 
just a natural flow of money that happens to trickle, you know, most of it will go to what looks like a recovering China. I saw some very positive commentary for the first time in four years. China is expected to grow in double digits next year. Um, one of the Goldman Sachs's, one of those, I think, was making that commentary yesterday. Um, and I and you said so most of the money will go to the hotspots in India and Vietnam and exciting places where you've got, you know, efficient governments that care about growth and, and, and opportunity and service delivery and all of those sorts of things but you know you, you know little little markets and and declining markets will also find support because there is value to be had in unloved places, as you know, your great superhero uh, Warren Buffett has told us for decades. He doesn't invest out of the United States, but he, he looks for value in the patch that he knows and understands best. And theoretically, this is the patch you should understand and know best. And and creating that fallacy in your mind that uh, things never get better, uh, you know, and I'm talking about investment markets specifically, is is not clever. I mean, I think what was so well timed today was the results of Mr. Price. We don't talk about individual shares much, no. you and I, but but just looking at them and and you know, and suddenly that company delivers spectacular results. Why? Because they've done some clever stuff, not because the economy is booming and they've got an easy environment to operate in. You've got. Good management teams. I feel like if I look at South African companies at the moment, the medium-sized ones in the JSE are probably the cheapest they've been for decades. And those medium-sized companies are being managed by the fittest managers you can find. Not because they run marathons, but because it's survival of the fittest and sure. they're surviving. And gee, when, when things turn uh, in, in terms of demand for their businesses, their share prices go really well. Do they go really well in three weeks and seven days' time? I don't know. That's four weeks, but that's fine. Yeah, yeah but I, I want to sound clever for a, for a change. So, so where we're not is we don't know the prediction of it, but what we do know is the cycle turns. Yes. And, and I think we've got phenomenal businesses here that know how to operate here. All they need uh, is the global situation to change. They don't even need the, the, the government here to do anything spectacular. Just demand globally changes and w- watch what happens here. Yeah, and just, uh, yeah, you've got to better get your goods in and out of the ports and all of the things that we know are problematic. But the one thing we do do well is when things do break, down, we then bring in adult supervision and we improve things. The president today appealing at Richards Bay for private sector help. Um, and we had a professor from Stellenbosch University saying actually the new management team at Transit is open to help and not putting any obstacles in the way and is doing the job um, that needs to be done to actually begin to restore the integrity of the ports. And so you get motivated by that sort of stuff and things have only just got to function well not brilliantly, well, um, and you start seeing really dramatic improvements. I'm finding myself shaking my head at you. It doesn't even have to function well. It just has to function slightly less bad than it is right now. No, look, for for every… a lot better. Absolutely. For things to be less bad is good, but we'd like well. Well is fine. And and then the, the, the point here is we're not even aiming for hope there. All we need is uh, is the demand for investment, uh, investment investors looking at, at kind of non-US shares to look for an opportunity. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, our investment grade though doesn't put us at the top of the tree for opportunity. Um, we are what two or three notches below investment grade, um, and you know that is something also that needs to be worked upon, and that doesn't happen. I've also in the negative cycle, I suppose we we've got a lot of stuff that needs to be fixed. Okay, well, well, let, let, let me uh, let me put it to you slightly differently. So, so we we are the best uh, performing frontier market. So, so now we oh, that what we are, yeah, okay. because we were in the emerging markets. You know, we're slightly bigger. You know, the bigger class of bigger economies. Now we're in the in the in the category below that. You know, so when you look at all the countries that have got the two deg- you know two degrees below uh, investment grade, whatever you want to call it, uh, we we stack up pretty well. There's some pretty you know do- dodgy competitors there. So so we're okay, but none of that matters 
if the demand for money going straight into America stops. And, and why does money stop going into America? Because investors go, okay, I'm going to start earning less interest now. Yeah. The world is a slightly more stable place. I need to place my money elsewhere for better potential growth. I can't keep chasing the Magnificent Seven. We'll benefit. So, so I'm not no. asking for any miracle. It's just something we all absolutely know, which is interest rates stop rising in America. Money flows outwards again. But again, diversification. It's diversification not only of shares and sectors, but diversification of geographies, diversification of markets. Diversification is is real and possible and actually quite simple. I was listening to some people talking the other day, very smart people whose names I immediately forget, but there were two <laughs> lovely people who know a lot about these things. Um, the guy who wrote uh, The Psychology of Money, Morgan Housel, um, was talking to somebody. And just saying, you know, the index fund story that you've been pushing for an awfully long time and that thing of just not being greedy and understanding that index funds are wonderfully diversified by nature. They also, you know, the the top 10 shares will always be top 10 shares because once the the top 10 shares are no longer in favor, they fall out and new ones take their place. Um, and you're always invested in the top 10 shares, no matter what they are. Uh, yeah. Plus everything else, um, and don't uh, don't be greedy. Don't be a schmuck about it. Just get that diversification. Understand that some parts of the world will be, will will do better at different times, um, and then choose different parts of the world or your favorite, the MSCI World Index, because then you do get the very best companies in the world, which will be the majority of the valuation of that MSCI World Index, and you'll get them on every corner of the globe. Come yeah. on, thank you very much for playing. I mean, there is a kind of an evolved index from there called the, the, I mean, it's such a long name, but the MSCI All Country World Index, the ACWIS is the short name for it, which now adds emerging markets. And I think the one thing we need to say is uh, don't make a big prediction in a direction. So if there are very clever people telling you that one particular economy is going to do incredibly well, that, that doesn't mean you should ignore that economy, but gee, you know, spread the risks across across a range of countries, economies, bonds, cash, all of this stuff, because at some point, something surprising will happen. And surprising events drive markets in a much bigger direction than the predicted events. Yeah. So, so, so diversification works incredibly well, often for reasons you didn't predict. Now, I always like to give you a moment to consider the question, because I surprise you with the questions on a regular basis. And this is a question from Mike. Uh, Mike says, a few people have approached me to start a trust for my overseas investments. Oh, dear. There's a trend. There's a trend when a few people have approached you. So Mike's got a lot of money um, and a few people have realized that Mike's got a lot of money and they now are saying, let us give you a very expensive structure to look after your money overseas. That's essentially what they're saying. Uh, these trust promoters, <laughs> so he's nice and cynical, which is good. He's, these trust promoters are telling me that I can save on estate duty on my death if I have the money in an offshore trust. Is this a good idea? I am tired as everyone is, of paying unnecessary tax. And any way to save tax sounds good to me. Good one, Mike. In a moment, Warren will reply. The Money Show. Personal Finance with Warren Ingram. A few people have approached Mike with the idea to start a trust for overseas investments. Trust promoters are telling him that he can save a state duty on his death. Uh, uh, if he has the money in offshore trust, is it a good idea? He's tired of paying unnecessary tax. Your first answer is going to be, don't do something just not to pay tax. 
because that is the logical first answer. And then you'll go, but he had the advantages and disadvantages. <laughs> We've been doing this for a while. <laughs> Taking up half my answer there. That was so so the, 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 you're right on the first part. I think, uh, I mean, one of the ways to, to get long-term capital growth is minimize the taxes you, you have to pay. That, that's, that is really sensible and rational. But, but what you shouldn't be doing is incurring enormous amounts of fees to save tax. That that's not clever. That's kind of dumb, in, in fact. Uh, and and the problem is, uh, and I think we're in a cycle now where where these and I, lo- I love Mike's word, trust promoters. That's what they are now. They're they're punting one angle. They're they're saying to to people with money that on your death you you're going to give the government. You know, and they've already wasted all your money. That's kind of the sales pitch at the moment. They're wasting all your money, and now you're going to give them an extra twenty or twenty five percent of your total estate when you die. So don't do that. Put everything in a trust. Uh, that could be a good answer sometimes for some people. Most of the time, it's a terrible answer. The reason you're going to end up starting with about three to five thousand uh, uh, dollars of costs that you're going to incur just to set the trust up. Just before you've done anything, before you saved any tax, you've, you've just given away three to five thousand dollars, and and that's a lot of money uh, that you've just given away. Then. Uh, you, you're going to have to incur that cost again every year, uh, year after year after year, to pay those lovely gray little lawyers sitting in Guernsey, Jersey, Isle of Man somewhere uh, to, for the benefit of putting your money in there. And then you are going to pay tax. You're going to pay lots of tax. What you're going to pay now is income tax because you can't just give the money away. You're going to, you're going to lend the money to your trust. Uh, and you're going to pay income tax on that trust, which you have to do. Otherwise, SARS says, no, 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 this is actually all in your estate, all the growth, everything. Uh, and then what the trust promoters don't really emphasize is you're only saving estate duty on the growth of the money that you put into the trust. So if you put in a million dollars and it grew to, to $2 million, well done, that's great growth. What you're saving is the estate duty on the growth from one to two. That's what you're saving. The million dollars was a loan. That loan has to be repaid to your estate. There, there is an enormous amount that goes on there. So yes, trusts can work sometimes for some people, but I, I think in most instances, especially, and I'm sorry to be blunt on, uh, on air, but if you're kind of 75, you know, long term is now not so long for, for Isn't you. as long as if you were 45. Exactly. No. <laughs> and uh, thank you, saving me there. And, and so suddenly that, that potential for growth, for your money to go from 1 million to $2 million, if you're 75, that, that potential is just a lot less because you need time on your side. Sure. So, so I'd, I think, you know, if, you're, if you've kind of got the mortality tables against you in this situation, think extremely carefully about saving estate duty. I think you're not, but you're going to make the estate, uh, the estate planners or the trust promoters very rich. Uh, and and so who who should do it? Well, well, if you're overseas and you're you know you're like that business guy you had on the show, but earlier, and and he's got some new business that might just mm-hmm. take over the world. That's a great thing to put in a trust because the growth on the asset is going to be saved in the trust. Well done. That's a that's a good idea. Or if you're extremely wealthy and you're 45 years old and you're extremely healthy, then you might have a long period of time where lots of assets can accumulate in that trust and 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 fall outside of your estate. But 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 the trick here is. You're going to give away a lot in fees, accounting hassles. There is a lot that goes on with a trust that doesn't get explained to people up front. And then there is a very uncomfortable thing that we spoke about off air is you're actually giving control of your assets to three people that you probably will never even meet except online and by, by email. And you're hoping they're going to do the right thing by you. 
And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't because they've got a view of the world and, and that is called let's not take risk with someone else's money. So you might say to them, please buy these fabulous shares that I think are amazing. And they say, no, no. <laughs> because they are they are you. They represent you. They are. They have the control over your assets and they don't have to listen to you. They, they may like what you have to say, but they go, well, actually, if it goes wrong, then you're going to blame us. So no. They don't want to get sued. They don't want their reputation to go at risk. So what they're going to is risk manager mode. They don't go into capital growth mode, even if it's yeah. responsible. So, so just be really careful, Mike. I, I, I think your, your skepticism is, is valid here. Is there, a, is there a point where there is an age and a level of assets? So it may be worth it at a million dollars. Maybe not worth it at a hundred thousand dollars, and it certainly isn't worth it as you suggest at seventy-five. But maybe worth it with a million dollars at forty-five to be putting it into a trust. Are there? Are, is there a guideline around that? Yes, yeah, so a real kind of really generic rule of thumb for me is a uh, uh, million dollars is a good number. So, so the, uh, because that starts to pay for those costs, the growth of the money yeah. can, can cover those costs. So, so a million dollars is a good level. Or, as I said, if there's a very high growth asset that you've got that you know is going to deliver a, a, a very good return, and, and I, don't, I don't know ever how you can guarantee yourself that, but it needs to be a good chance. Uh, and then age is a critical thing. So if you know you've got at least sort of 20 years, all things being equal of life left, go for it. If, you, if there's a good chance that you've only got five years, please don't go for it. There we go. I think that's good advice. We don't know how old Mike is. Uh, but Mike, certainly I'm sure that is useful and I'm sure it is useful to many other people. There, When you're getting calls from multiple organizations all punting the same thing, it's a trend. You're not getting advice. You're getting sold to. Um, and, you know, you, you should have... In every in every relationship, you should have an advisor that you trust, who you can go to and say, "I've got you know two or three of these people phoning me, and they that your advisor should be able to give you that independent advice." Because if it was really the right thing to do, they should have told you to do it five years ago, I suppose. Um, but yes, thank you, Warren Ingram. He is a director at Galileo Capital. He's a certified financial planner. He is. Uh, the Money Show with Bruce Whitfield was brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking, bringing you award-winning trade and working capital funding solutions to unlock the full potential of your business story. APSA is a registered FSP.